As human societies have developed throughout history, the dominant form of government has changed. 600 years ago, the nation states that we know of today didn't exist, and much of the world was ruled by different monarchies. Europe, for instance, was largely dominated by feudalism. Kings owned all of the land, and then they distributed some of that land to be managed by feudal lords and vassals, and then the land was worked by peasants, by serfs, who were not paid wages, but the wealth that they produced ended up being paid essentially as taxes to the feudal lords and the king. Then with the growth in imperialism and colonialism, you had the rise of capitalism and you had the industrial revolution, the creation of new technologies and the creation of industry. You also had the emergence of class society where instead of the old feudal divisions, you had workers who sold their labor in order to make a living and they sold their labor to the capitalists. And in particular, you had the emergence of new forms of government like liberal democracy, which emerged after revolutions like the French Revolution and replaced the old monarchist and feudal systems. Now, from the earliest days of capitalism, going back even to mercantilism, there was always a close relationship between the state that was emerging and the different capitalist firms. The first corporations ever created, like for instance, the Dutch East India Company or the British East India Company, worked closely with the government at the time. They were backed by the crown. They were chartered companies, chartered by the crown. And the question of where the company began and where the Dutch Empire or British Empire ended was a very difficult question to answer. There was not a neat division between the state and the companies because they were chartered companies backed by the crown. This was also true for the modern day United States. Before it existed as a country, it was a colonial project of the British Empire. And there were numerous companies like the Virginia Company, the Plymouth Company that colonized the Americas and they were chartered companies chartered by the British crown, the English crown. And they were going to the Americas to seek profits. And that laid the foundations for the colonization, eventually the genocide of native peoples who lived there and the creation of the United States. The reason I'm talking about this history is I want to emphasize that for the majority of the history of capitalism, it has had a close relationship with the government, with the state, even at the time of monarchism and even when, with the rise of liberal democracies and the European revolutions like the French Revolution that overthrew the French monarchy, you had a very close relationship between the government and different capitalist firms. Many of these firms were directly involved in colonialism. Of course, this is at the peak of European colonial conquest, and many of these companies were used to extract the wealth and resources of countries in the global south that were colonized by the European colonial powers. And that colonial violence really exploded in World War I, in which the different European colonial powers fought a war with each other, essentially fighting over which parts of the world that they could colonize. This was made very clear in the famous Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916, in which representatives of the British and French empires sat down and made a map 
in which they carved up the old Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, and decided which modern-day countries, they weren't countries at the time, but which regions, like Syria and Palestine and Lebanon, which would go to the British Empire and which would go to the French Empire. And the reason we found out about this partition, this agreement, is because after the Russian Revolution, the Bolsheviks actually leaked the information of the Sykes-Picot Agreement publicly because the Russian Tsarist Empire had been involved in the talks. Now, we all know that the way World War I was ended with the Treaty of Versailles, putting basically all of the blame on Germany and forcing Germany to pay reparations that bankrupted the economy. It was unable to pay them and led to hyperinflation and the rise of Nazism. We all know how that helped to set the stage for World War II. But of course, there was another very significant factor, which was the Great Depression. And the Great Depression fundamentally changed, in many ways, the relationship between a lot of governments and the way they ran their economy. In fact, one of the most influential economists in world history who played a key role in this era, the British economist John Maynard Keynes, himself had been a critic of the Treaty of Versailles, warning that Germany would not be able to pay back all of these reparations. It would cause horrific damage to the German economy and therefore much of the European economies as well. Well, Keynes became a very prominent figure after the Great Depression because many of his ideas became mainstream among economists and policymakers. You see, the Great Depression was a wake-up call for many Western governments because it was realized that if the government did not act and deficit spend to provide a stimulus for the economy, it would lead to a deflationary spiral. It was pretty easy to explain. During a depression, many people lost their jobs. What that meant is that the overall demand in the economy, the aggregate demand went down. Workers had fewer dollars to spend. They didn't have their wages anymore. So that means that they are not buying goods and services, which means that many businesses simply can't afford to pay their bills they shut down operations, they go out of business, which means they lay off their workers. And as more and more workers lose their job, they become unemployed. That means that the government has less tax revenue because they don't have wages they can tax. So this leads to a deflationary spiral. And the way that economists like John Maynard Keynes called for getting out of these deflationary spirals like we saw in the Great Depression was for the government to deficit spend to spend to increase employment, to invest in public works, and to stimulate the economy in a counter-cyclical way. This ushered in the era of Keynesianism, which continued until the 1970s. Governments recognized that a deficit is not inherently bad. The government can intervene in the economy. It's not all about freeing the market in this laissez-faire ideology that became dominant later. Instead, there was a recognition that capitalist economies have a business cycle, a series of booms and busts. There are moments of great economic expansion and also moments of recession. And at times of recession, the government should increase its intervention in the economy, deficit spend, provide stimuli in order to push the economy back toward expansion. And at moments when there perhaps is too much expansion, the economy is too hot, 
The government can change its fiscal policy. That is, it can increase taxation in order to cool the economy down so there aren't big bubbles, like the kinds of bubbles we saw, for instance, that led to the Great Depression or the bubbles that led to the dot-com bust in the late 90s and 2000 in the United States or the 2008 financial crash, which was also caused by a massive bubble, largely in real estate. This so-called golden era of capitalism from the end of World War II until the 1970s was the Keynesian era, and there was significant state intervention in the economy. And it was so mainstream, in fact, that even right-wing Republican presidents like famously Richard Nixon referred to themselves as Keynesians. Nixon has been quoted famously as saying, we are all Keynesians now. This was so surprising that the New York Times in 1971 published an article titled Nixon reportedly says he is now a Keynesian. The New York Times pointed out that at the time, the Republican Party's economic philosophy was a balanced budget, although very few presidents actually implemented that. I'll talk about that a bit later. But the New York Times pointed out that the Republican president embracing the Keynes doctrine of expansionist public spending and a deficit budget was like a Christian saying, all things considered, I think Muhammad was right. However, that bipartisan Keynesian consensus, which we saw in many countries around the world, changed in the 1970s. This was in response to a variety of different factors and crises, many of which I've analyzed here at Geopolitical Economy Report, including the OPEC oil lockout and the massive rise in oil prices and other commodity prices, the decolonization movements across the global south, the national liberation struggles, also specifically the US dollar delinking from gold, which Nixon himself oversaw in 1971 and the rise of fiat currencies, Furthermore, the different geopolitical conflicts around the world. This is at the peak of the original first Cold War. And then, of course, the rise of inflation and stagflation, simultaneous economic stagnation and inflation. And what happened in the late 1970s is the Keynesian consensus died out and you had the emergence of neoliberalism. This is the new phase of ruling class ideology that we've really globally, we've seen much of the planet dominated by since the 1970s. And in the past decade, neoliberalism has been slowly dying out. But really, for most of the people who are watching or listening to this today, your lifetime has been dominated by neoliberal ideology. The most well-known manifestation of this came in 1979 with the rise of the conservative party leader Margaret Thatcher to be prime minister of the United Kingdom. Margaret Thatcher ushered in this neoliberal ideology, which had been emerging. In fact, you could even go back to the US president, a Democrat, Jimmy Carter, who came to power in 1977, but it was really solidified in a concrete way under Margaret Thatcher. She summarized the neoliberal ideology quite clearly in an interview in which Thatcher complained that the government's responsibility was not to help children and poor people and homeless people. She complained that people who are homeless think that the government should help them. And she said, no, 
quote, they are casting their problems on society. And who is society? There is no such thing. There are individual men and women, and there are families, and no government can do anything except through people, and people look to themselves first. It is our duty to look after ourselves. So this was the leader of the UK saying, there is no such thing as society. Society does not exist. What we call society consists merely of a loose collection of individuals that are acting based on greed and our rational self-interest. Now, before the rise of Thatcher and then Ronald Reagan in the United States in the late 70s and 80s, these ideas were seen as very fringe and radical. There were economists and philosophers pushing some of these ideas, most famously the Austrian school of economists in the early 20th century, people like Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises. By the way, many of these Austrian school economists, the original libertarians, were quite sympathetic to fascism and they saw fascism. They said clearly they saw fascism in the 1930s as preferable over communism. They wrote that clearly. So there has always been links between fascism and Austrian school ideology, this extreme libertarian economics that became mainstream essentially in the late 70s and 80s with the rise of neoliberalism. Now, the term neoliberalism often confuses people, especially in the United States, because they hear the term liberalism and they associate it with left-wing politics. But no, no, no. We're talking about the idea of classical liberalism, which is the idea that society should be organized around individual liberties, that the state's powers should be limited, and instead, society should be organized in a way that maximizes individual freedoms. The government does not have a responsibility to help poor people, to help marginalized communities. Instead, the government should be limited. That is classical liberalism. So neoliberalism is the emergence, the re-emergence of liberalism in mainstream economics, as opposed to the Keynesian school of economics that had been dominant, again, even among people like Republican President Richard Nixon, for decades. In the United States, the clearest embodiment of this was President Ronald Reagan, the Republican, who came to power in 1981. And in his inauguration speech, he famously declared, quote, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. This was essentially an era in which libertarianism became completely mainstream. And there are always going to be libertarians who claim that, no, that Thatcher and Reagan were not true libertarians. They were small government conservatives. But, you know, we want even smaller governments. We want to get rid of the state. I mean, they use these no true Scotsman's argument. So they can always, you know, say that libertarianism has never been implemented because the government was never small enough. But the point is that these ideas became completely mainstream among the ruling class in not only Western governments, but around the world. And in particular, the United States imposed neoliberal ideology, which is essentially free market fundamentalism, on countries all around the world, in particular in the global south. This was largely done through the Bretton Woods Institution, that is the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, 
and the World Bank. These were the international financial institutions that were created in the 1944 Bretton Woods Conference in which the Allied powers toward the end of World War II decided to remake the international financial system. And that was the same conference, by the way, that established the US dollar as the global reserve currency. And at that time, it was pegged to gold at a set price of $35 per ounce of gold. And it was actually Nixon who took the dollar off of gold. But anyway, the point is that those Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, which have been dominated by the United States, only the United States has veto power in those Bretton Woods institutions. When, with the rise of neoliberalism in the 1980s, that came at a moment of really the peak of the US unipolar empire. In 1991, the Soviet Union was overthrown and the United States used these institutions to impose neoliberalism on Russia. And we, there was massive shock therapy and mass privatizations in Russia. The United Nations Children's Fund, known as UNICEF, published a report a decade after these neoliberal reforms were imposed on Russia. And they found that it resulted in 3.2 million excess deaths, that is, more than 3 million Russians who died who would not have died if the neoliberal shock therapy had not been imposed. They also found that 18 million children were pushed into poverty, living on less than $2.15 per day. And there were massive health crises, including outbreaks of HIV, tuberculosis, high levels of child malnutrition. And really, it was societal collapse with the neoliberal policies that were imposed. In the Global South, many very similar policies were imposed. And in fact, these neoliberal policies were, were so conventional, they were so common, that they came to be known popularly as the Washington Consensus. This term had actually been coined in 1989 by a right-wing economist who had worked with the IMF and the World Bank named John Williamson. He had also worked at the UK Treasury, of course, which helped give birth to neoliberalism. And he famously wrote in his Washington Consensus 10-point list. These are the following policies that characterized neoliberalism. Reducing national budget deficits, that is, ending government budget deficits, which had been used to fund you know, stimuli for the economy and provide social services and also build infrastructure and provide employment. So cut government spending. Number two was redirect spending from politically popular areas, that is healthcare, education, and, and employment, and instead using government spending in areas with high economic returns. And the Washington Consensus said very clearly that this includes cutting government support and subsidies for food and fuel. So making it more difficult for average working people to buy food. I mean, this is part of the neoliberal policies. Three, reform the tax system, which included cutting taxes on the rich and corporations to make economic policy, fiscal policy more competitive in scare quotes. Point four was liberalizing the financial sector with the goal of market-determined interest rates. So this is essentially putting finance in the hands of private capitalists of big commercial banks and investment banks, instead of having state control over where finance goes. So 
Of course, if the state wants to provide loans, low interest loans to build infrastructure or to develop certain strategic industries, no, 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 no. The neoliberals instead think everything should be planned, not by the government, but, but should be planned in Wall Street. That foreign investors should determine how financial markets function. And related to that is point five, adopting a competitive single exchange rate, and in particular, letting the so-called free market determine a country, a currency for a country's exchange rate. So this is another way, again, of letting foreign markets, foreign investors determine how strong or weak your country's currency will be. And in particular, this is a way of undermining the system of import substitution industrialization that had been common in much of the global south, where governments would intentionally have a stronger currency. They would maintain their currency using different currency controls and foreign exchange interventions by the central bank. They would maintain a stronger currency, which is a way of encouraging domestic consumption. And then they would use that with protectionist policies like tariffs, which is a way of strengthening their local industries and making it more difficult for foreign corporations to compete. And by completely lifting all currency controls, it usually led to a massive devaluing of currencies in the global south, which made it made exports more competitive, but made it very difficult for local workers to buy products. So local workers lose purchasing power. It's an attack on workers as a class war. And of course, this policy went hand in hand with six reducing trade restrictions. So the Washington consensus told countries to lift tariffs, to lift protectionist policies, and point seven, abolish barriers to foreign direct investment, which allowed foreign capitalists to buy up industries, to invest in local industries, which is, again, a way of destroying competition in the global south, which allowed corporations in the advanced imperialist countries, the, the rich capitalist countries like the United States and Europe and Japan, they could simply destroy any competition in the global south using economies of scale, using their competitive advantage. And this basically turned many global south countries into deindustrialized resource hubs. They were basically colonized and their local industry was destroyed in countries like Brazil and Argentina. And instead they became cheap agricultural export resources. So in Argentina and in Brazil and also in Mexico, the country that had previously had advanced industry, they simply exported their cheap agricultural goods to the wealthy imperialist countries. And of course, point eight of the Washington consensus was privatize state-owned enterprises. So privatize the publicly owned utilities companies, the water companies, the electrical companies, privatize the state-owned railroads, which is what happened in Britain. For countries that had large oil reserves or lithium or copper, privatize those state-owned companies and let foreign corporations control all those resources. Point nine of the Washington consensus was abolish policies that restrict competition, which is again, a way of deregulating all markets so foreign corporations can exploit your local economy. And then of course, probably the most important of all, Point 10 was property rights. Protect the property rights in particular of foreign investors. So these policies are the basis of the neoliberal ideology that has been completely dominant 
since the late 1970s and the 1980s that has been imposed on countries around the world. And still today, many countries are being forced to impose the Washington Consensus through institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. This neoliberal ideology was so common and so widespread that at the time you had neoliberal philosophers and political scientists like Francis Fukuyama in the United States who declared that it was the end of history. It was the final stage of human development and basically every government would inevitably become a liberal democracy with a capitalist economy implementing neoliberal policies. The right-wing economist John Williamson, who coined the term Washington Consensus, in 2002, he arrogantly wrote in an article that, quote, left-wing believers in Keynesian stimulation via large budget deficits are almost an extinct species. Pretty much all mainstream economists were neoliberals. Perhaps the most prominent neoliberal economist at the time who was a priest of free market fundamentalist ideology, Milton Friedman, he was really all over the media. He was a kind of celebrity, a household name. And not only did his, his ideas influence Western governments, he also had been a huge influence on fascist dictatorships, like for instance, Pinochet in Chile, who came to power in 1973 after a US-backed coup against the democratically elected socialist president, Salvador Allende. So the people of Chile voted in a socialist Allende. And then in 1973, the CIA overthrew Allende in this violent coup. And it was led by a general, Pinochet, and he implemented neoliberalism. Chile was the first country on earth to implement the neoliberal ideology, this libertarian economics, this free market fundamentalism. And it was simultaneously implemented with fascism. I mentioned there have always been these kinds of ties between libertarianism and fascism, and Pinochet is a great example of that. So while he was privatizing everything and freeing the market and implementing this libertarian ideology, he was also rounding up leftists, throwing them in concentration camps, murdering them. He killed thousands of leftists. He, he threw some leftists out of helicopters, or at least his regime did. And by the way, under Pinochet, Chile also welcomed Nazi war criminals who fled Germany after World War II, and they went to Chile, and many of them were supported by the government. They, they were involved in these penal colonies where actually they were notorious for abusing children and for torturing and murdering leftists. So the point is that the first ever country on earth that implemented libertarianism was also a fascist dictatorship, a military regime under the general Pinochet, and that ideology became completely mainstream and was spread across the world by the United States, which of course is who, the country that imposed it in Chile in the first place. Milton Friedman inspired Pinochet and actually he even met in person with Pinochet, praising him and advising his fascist regime. But another example of a neoliberal economist who's not as well known as Milton Friedman, but also very influential was Robert Lucas. Robert Lucas won a Nobel Prize for economics, in particular because of his idea of the rational expectations hypothesis, which has been largely debunked, but it was mainstream economics orthodoxy, and that's why he won the Nobel Prize. The perfect example of just how mainstream neoliberalism was, was in 2003, Robert Lucas was invited to give a speech, the presidential address, 
at the American Economic Association, one of the most influential organizations for economics in the world, not just in the United States. And in his speech, he noted that macroeconomics as a discipline emerged largely in response to the Great Depression, and its goal was to prevent a similar kind of depression from happening in the future. And in this 2003 speech at the American Economic Association, this Nobel Prize winning neoliberal economist famously declared, quote, my thesis in this lecture is that macroeconomics in this original sense has succeeded. Its central problem of depression prevention has been solved for all practical purposes and has in fact been solved for many decades. This is how arrogant neoliberals were. They insisted that they had solved the problem of depressions. There would no longer be any more recessions or depressions in the future. The neoliberals had solved it. This is one of the most renowned Nobel Prize winning economists declaring that in 2003. Now, this is, of course, very ironic because this came after the dot-com crash, the big bubble in the late 90s and 2000s. It also came after the Asian financial crisis of 1997. And then, of course, just a few years after giving this speech, you had the biggest depression since the Great Depression. You had the Great Recession of 2008. So at that moment, many neoliberal economists, despite being completely mainstream, were really completely discredited. And the 2008 financial crash was a wake-up call for many Western governments in particular and economists. And it led to a resurgence of interest in Keynesianism. And many mainstream economists turned a little bit back toward Keynesianism. This was the famous new Keynesian school, not to be confused with the neo-Keynesians. I know it can be a little confusing, but this was an attempt to combine Keynesian economics with neoclassical economics. It's embodied by people like New York Times pundit Paul Krugman, who also won a Nobel Prize. These are the mainstream economists who brought back elements of Keynesianism, although still in the context of neoclassical economics. And in many ways, they still have not broken out of the neoliberal bubble, although they're not as extreme in their fundamentalism as the old school neoliberals, the monetarists in particular, they disagree in monetary policy and also fiscal policy. They, they support government stimuli and budget deficits. And so there are differences between the new Keynesians like Paul Krugman and the monetarists, the old school neoliberals like Milton Friedman. But there still are a lot of similarities between them. And really what we've been seeing is that there has been this crisis of neoliberalism, but it still lives on in a kind of zombie neoliberalism. And many neoclassical economists just cannot break out of it. An example of this kind of schizophrenia could be seen in European responses to the financial crash where European authorities, especially from the so-called Troika, that is the European Central Bank, the European Commission, and the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, they imposed many neoliberal austerity policies on countries in Europe, and that actually resulted in economic crises getting worse. So as an example, the Troika imposed austerity policies on Greece. The argument made was that Greece was living above its means. The government was spending too much on social programs for poor and working people. So the government had to impose austerity. And the rationale was that Greece had to bring down its debt. 
However, the irony is that by imposing these neoliberal policies, it actually resulted in the economy shrinking and the percentage of the debt in relation to the GDP increased. So technically, while the economy shrunk, the debt did shrink, but the proportion of the debt to the size of the economy increased. So it became even more difficult for countries like Italy or Greece to pay off that debt in the long term. These are the destructive neoliberal policies that continued being imposed in Europe in the 2000s, despite the resurge of interest in Keynesianism. A perfect example of this kind of schizophrenia could be seen in 2016, when none other than the IMF itself, one of the godfathers of neoliberalism, which has imposed neoliberalism and the Washington Consensus on countries around the world, the IMF published a report by its own economists in 2016 titled Neoliberalism Oversold. The article noted that, quote, instead of delivering growth, some neoliberal policies have increased inequality, in turn jeopardizing durable expansion. And the article begins pointing out, you know, Milton Friedman and Chile helped give birth to neoliberalism and that those policies implemented by the Pinochet dictatorship, they don't mention that part, in Chile were then imposed all around the world. The IMF economists wrote, quote, there has been a strong and widespread global trend toward neoliberalism since the 1980s. They acknowledge, however, quote, there are aspects of the neoliberal agenda that have not delivered as expected. The IMF economists that there really is not proof that neoliberal policies led to increased growth across all countries. Instead, what happens is that certain countries are cherry picked when in reality, overall growth has been smaller in the neoliberal era than it was during the Keynesian era. I'll come back to that point in a second. In this report, the IMF economists also wrote, quote, the costs in terms of increased inequality are prominent and there's a trade-off between growth and equity, and increased inequality in turn hurts the levels and sustainability of growth. This is obvious. I mean, any Keynesian economist could have told you this for decades because as neoliberal policies are imposed, it leads often to financialization of the economy and deindustrialization, and poor and working people, especially those who had worked, for instance, in good manufacturing jobs like unionized workers who worked in car factories in the US, they lose their jobs as they get deindustrialized. And what happens is that increased inequality means that there is less aggregate demand, or at least there's less demand among working people. And wealthy people, they don't spend most of their income and their wealth. Instead, they invest it. Whereas poor and working people tend to suspend a much larger percentage of their overall income because they're buying food and they're buying other products, which increases economic activity. Whereas when rich people get access to more income, they invest it in more assets. And that leads to a big bubble that is not high quality economic growth in the real economy. So it's no surprise that as there's more inequality, it actually hurts economic growth because if working people had the ability to spend more and increase domestic consumption and boost aggregate demand, it would be a stimulus for the economy. However, what neoliberals did, the misleading sleight of hand that they did, is they often looked 
at the short-term economic growth in countries that implemented neoliberal policies at first, ignoring the long-term implications. Because what neoliberalism essentially was, the neoliberal policies imposed, were a sugar rush in the economy. So the government privatizes a bunch of state-owned industries, which means it has all of this, this extra money now sitting around that it can use to invest. And furthermore, you also at, at first, at the beginning, you often have a massive increase in foreign investment in hot money in particular. This is not long-term investment. It's low-quality, short-term investment from foreign investors who don't really know anything about what they're investing in, but they read in the financial press and neoliberal magazines like The Economist that this is a good investment opportunity in a country like Chile or Indonesia. And they invest, and then as soon as there is political instability or as soon as the government comes in that implements policies they don't like, they withdraw all of that capital, the money floods out, and the, sh the sugar rush in the economy that came from the privatizations, which only happens one time. You privatize the company, and then the, the government has this short-term increase in revenue, but then as soon as you spend that, you no longer have that asset that, that you sold. Whereas if you have state-owned industries, like an oil company, you have steady revenue over time. You don't just have the short sugar rush. So what happens is that neoliberals, they'll look at the short-term economic growth in an economy, but ignore how in the long-term, it actually decreases growth. If you look at World Bank data of global GDP growth per capita, so this is accounting for population increases, you can see that in the Keynesian era in the 1960s, global growth was around 4%. In 1964, 4.4%. In 1966, 3.5, 3.8. So it was around four or in the upper three percentile range. And then you have the emergence of neoliberalism and economic crises. Of course, you had economic crisis in the 70s that gave birth to neoliberalism. And then the 80s, you suddenly have a decrease in economic growth globally. Again, this is in the entire world. And world growth is under 3% and continues to shrink in the 90s, around 2%. And then you have a big bubble and it, it goes up to around 3% and then you have the 2008 financial crash. And since then, global economic growth has been stagnant under 2%. And by the way, this is all even considering still China's economic growth. And China did not implement neoliberalism. So if you extract China's incredible world historic economic growth from the global GDP growth, you can see very clearly that in the Keynesian era, the so-called golden era of capitalism, when there was much more state intervention in the economy, there was overall more economic growth. Whereas in the neoliberal era, it has decreased and trended toward stagnation. This isn't to mention, by the way, the quality of that economic growth, because in the golden era of Keynesianism, it was also a golden era of manufacturing. And not just in the the wealthy capitalist countries, but even in many global South countries, it was also the era of import substitution industrialization. So countries were developing their local industries and they were producing tangible goods that people could use in their everyday lives. Whereas in the neoliberal era, there has been instead a trend toward financialization and also the service sector instead of tangibly producing things and big bubbles of financial speculation, which again, are not tangible products that people can use 
in their everyday life. Now, despite the fact that this zombie neoliberalism still lives on in many ways among both political parties in the United States, we actually have seen some top U.S. government officials acknowledge the failure of neoliberalism and the Washington consensus. And in fact, there was a historic speech that was given this April by the top U.S. national security official, that is the national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, who was appointed by President Joe Biden. And I actually looked at clips of this speech in a separate video that I did based on China's economic model, comparing it, contrasting it and how to neoliberalism, showing how different China's market socialist model is. And I'll link to that in the description below. Here, I'm going to go back and look at some of these brief clips from the speech, because I think it's really a historic speech. He acknowledges the failure of the neoliberal Washington consensus. And he says that really the U.S. needs to turn away from the neoliberal policies that it's implemented for decades. And instead, the U.S. needs to go back toward a kind of Keynesian approach with much more state investment in certain strategic industries, industrial policy, in, in increased investment in social programs and moving away from the free market fundamentalist ideology that has been completely dominant for decades. America's industrial base had been hollowed out. The vision of public investment that had energized the American project in the post-war years, and indeed for much of our history, had faded. It had given way to a set of ideas that championed tax cutting and deregulation, privatization over public action, and trade liberalization as an end in itself. There was one assumption at the heart of all of this policy, that markets always allocate capital productively and efficiently, no matter what our competitors did, no matter how big our shared challenges grew, and no matter how many guardrails we took down. Now, no one, certainly not me, is discounting the power of markets. But in the name of oversimplified market efficiency, entire supply chains of strategic goods, along with the industries and jobs that made them, moved overseas. And the postulate that deep trade liberalization would help America export goods, not jobs and capacity, was a promise made but not kept. Another embedded assumption was that the type of growth didn't matter. All growth was good growth. So various reforms combined came together to privilege some sectors of the economy, like finance, while other essential sectors, like semiconductors and infrastructure, atrophied. Our industrial capacity, which is crucial to any country's ability to continue to innovate, took a real hit. The shocks of a global financial crisis and a global pandemic laid bare the limits of these prevailing assumptions. By the time President Biden came into office, we had to contend with the reality that a large non-market economy had been integrated into the international economic order in a way that posed considerable challenges. The People's Republic of China continued to subsidize at a massive scale both traditional industrial sectors like steel as well as key industries of the future like clean energy, digital infrastructure, and advanced biotechnologies. America didn't just lose manufacturing, we eroded our competitiveness in critical technologies that would define the future. And ignoring economic dependencies that had built up over the decades of liberalization had become really perilous, from energy uncertainty in Europe to supply chain vulnerabilities in medical equipment, semiconductors, and critical minerals. 
These were the kinds of dependencies that could be exploited for economic or geopolitical leverage. The prevailing assumption was that trade-enabled growth would be inclusive growth, that the gains of trade would end up getting broadly shared within nations. But the fact is that those gains failed to reach a lot of working people. The American middle class lost ground while the wealthy did better than ever, and American manufacturing communities were hollowed out while cutting-edge industries moved to metropolitan areas. Now, the drivers of economic inequality, as many of you know even better than I, are complex, and they include structural realities like the digital revolution. But key among these drivers are decades of trickle-down economic policies, policies like regressive tax cuts, deep cuts to public investment, unchecked corporate concentration, and active measures to undermine the labor movement that initially built the American middle class. So this is the biggest irony of all. Chinese socialism has been so effective that it's basically forcing the U.S. to implement socialistic policies and to go back to the Keynesian policies that it had before the rise of neoliberalism in the late 1970s and the 1980s. Now, before I conclude here, I want to look at some other examples of the hypocrisy of the neoliberal era, because while the United States was imposing the Washington consensus on countries around the world, the reality is that even the father of the godfather of neoliberalism, Ronald Reagan, was very inconsistent and contradictory in his own policies. So while he preached about how great the beloved free market was, in fact, Ronald Reagan was carrying out a trade war against Japan, and in 1987, Reagan imposed 100% tariffs on many different Japanese electronic products. U.S. corporations were unable to compete with Japanese companies, so instead of relying on the free market and free trade, the Ronald Reagan administration imposed protectionist policies that the neoliberals would never allow countries in the global south to impose. So we always see this double standard where the U.S. economy will engage in protectionist policies to protect its own interests, but tell other countries they're not allowed to do so. Another clear example of this hypocrisy can be seen in U.S. government budget deficits because while Washington was lecturing countries around the world about the need to cut their budget deficits and balance the budget and implement the Washington consensus, the U.S. has consistently maintained a massive budget deficit, increasing debt in the neoliberal era. In fact, the U.S. budget deficit massively increased in the neoliberal era. I'll just read here from the website Investopedia, which actually does write largely from a kind of neoliberal perspective, but they, ha they acknowledge the rise of U.S. government deficit spending. They note that, that during the big two world wars in the early 20th century, the U.S. maintained big budget deficits, and the U.S. has run a budget deficit nearly every year since 1961. However, the deficits begin to balloon in the 1970s and 80s, in particular in the era of the rise of neoliberalism. President Ronald Reagan took office in 1981, vowing to limit the size of government. Still, during his eight years in the White House, the nation's deficit doubled and topped $200 billion several times. Reagan's successor, George H.W. Bush, another Republican, also presided over a record-breaking deficit of $209 billion in 1992. The irony is that the only president 
since the 1960s who has briefly overseen a budget surplus was a Democrat, Bill Clinton, because again, this is the core tenet of neoliberal ideology and neoliberalism is completely bipartisan. Ironically, it was the Democratic president who implemented neoliberalism even more aggressively than Reagan. Clinton, you could say, was in some ways more neoliberal than the godfather of neoliberalism, Ronald Reagan. Investopedia points out that under pressure from Republicans in Congress, President Bill Clinton, a Democrat, agreed to consistently cut the deficit and eventually oversaw the first budget surplus in decades. The $128 billion surplus recorded in 2001 was the last time a surplus has been seen in this century. When he took office in 2001, Republican President George W. Bush cited the Clinton surplus as evidence that taxes were too high. <laughs> then, so he used it as an excuse to cut taxes on the rich and that increased the budget deficit yet again. The deficit reached a record $458 billion in 2008, Bush's last year in office, and that would triple in the following year as the Bush and Obama administrations faced the global financial crisis. And since then, the U.S. budget deficits have skyrocketed under Obama, Democrat, Donald Trump, a Republican, and they've continued under Joe Biden, another Democrat. Investopedia points out the U.S. budget deficit exploded in 2009, ultimately reaching $1.4 trillion under Bush and the incoming Obama administration. And most of that deficit was created on Bush's watch, but Obama and the Democratic-controlled Congress also added hundreds of billions of dollars to it in early 2009. Then President Trump continued the trend of pushing the deficit higher as he sought massive tax cuts for the rich and increased military spending. His first budget, for 2018 recorded a deficit of 779 billion that later increased to more than a trillion in 2020 and then of course when the pandemic hit there was a massive deficit which of course made sense the irony is that now that a democrat's back in office he is slightly decreasing the government budget deficit compared to the Republicans. So we see that once again, that this is completely bipartisan, but the irony is that actually Republicans often have some of the biggest government deficits, and they're the ones who talk about the need for small government. If you look at a list of the change in US government debt by president, if you ignore World War I and World War II, where obviously government spending was massively in deficit because of the war. So if you exclude FDR and Woodrow Wilson, who were, who were Democrats, but again, at, at war, the ironically, the president who oversaw the biggest increase in government debt was Ronald Reagan, the godfather of neoliberalism at 160%, followed by Bush, Bush Jr., and of course the war on terror at 72%, followed by Obama, followed by Bush Sr., followed by Richard Nixon, followed by Donald Trump, followed by Jimmy Carter. So the irony is that the very same neoliberals that were lecturing countries around the world to cut their government deficits, to impose austerity, to de decrease government spending on social policies and programs like healthcare and education and employment, those same neoliberal leaders in the U.S. have overseen the biggest government deficits 
and increases in U.S. debt in the history of U.S. excluding World War I and World War II. I mean, this is the incredible schizophrenia and hypocrisy of the neoliberal era. It has always been austerity for the global South through the Washington consensus, while in the United States, there has been the imposition of neoliberalism, but it has been done at the same time as massive government deficits. And where does all of that money go? I mean, this is what modern monetary theorists talk about, MMT, but that money went into the pockets of the rich. It went into pumping up asset price inflation, pumping up a big bubble of asset prices, which benefited the rich. So all of that deficit spending did not actually benefit poor and working people. It benefited the wealthy oligarchs, big corporations, and Wall Street, which is why we've seen such a massive increase in inequality. So deficit spending is not inherently good. It depends what kind of deficit spending is. If it's deficit spending for tax breaks on the rich and more and more war and regime change operations all around the world with a massively increasing military budget, that's not good. Or ironically, at the same time as the neoliberals talked about decreasing the government and you know uh, freeing the market and all of this and a small government, at the same time, we've seen a massive increase in military spending and police spending. And police in the United States have become increasingly militarized. Their budgets have skyrocketed in the neoliberal era. And as an example, the New York Police Department, the NYPD, its budget is larger than the entire military budget of North Korea, which has nuclear weapons. And we're constantly told to be afraid of North Korea, but the New York Police Department has a larger budget than the North Korean military. The ultimate irony and the note that I'll end on here is that at the same time, more and more figures in Washington are warning about the dangerous long-term impact of neoliberalism. So earlier, I looked at those clips from the U.S. National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, acknowledging that neoliberalism has been a complete disaster and has resulted in all of these problems in the United States. Jake Sullivan is just one of many other figures in Washington who have acknowledged the failure of neoliberalism and the Washington consensus. That's why they're talking about a so-called new Washington consensus. But as I explained in my previous video, and podcast on China and the growth of China's socialist model. The irony is that the reason that the U.S. is now finally turning away from neoliberalism and back toward elements of Keynesianism is precisely because of the success of Chinese socialism. So it's been it's taken Chinese socialism for the U.S. to admit the failure of its neoliberal model. That's the moment we're in now. It's a very interesting moment of historic transition. And here at Geopolitical Economy Report, I am going to always be reporting on and analyzing these latest developments. I'm going to conclude here because this is very long, but I want to thank everyone for watching or listening. Please subscribe on whatever platform you're on, especially if you're watching on YouTube to help promote this material in the algorithm. And if you want to support the work that we do here, you can donate in a few different ways. We have no big institutional support and no big sponsors. We rely entirely on small donations from viewers and listeners. So please consider going to geopoliticaleconomy.com support. Or the best way to support us is when you become a patron over at patreon.com slash geopoliticaleconomy. I want to thank everyone. I'm Ben Norton. I'll see you next time.